Boom. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Real Drug Talk. My name is Jack Nagel. Now, straight off the top, we're winding it back. Uh, I've been chatting to some people that help me out with these kind of things or just provide support and advice to me with everything that I'm trying to do in my career. And they said, Jack, stop fucking stressing about your info intros you know you wouldn't believe it sometimes i sit here about 10 to 20 times and redo them redo them redo them and you know what they sound the same anyway and you know nobody really cares that much well i don't think so anyway so we're just hot first taking it straight off the bat um so in today's show uh we are talking to mel walker who is the ceo of avil um but before i tell you about her and her organization just want to let everyone know we're getting some really good signups and feedbacks we have put out a hundred percent free addiction recovery course um you can go to connection based living website to grab that course or you can join our facebook group um addiction support for users and families um or you can just message us or reach out we'll send you the link or you can even click it in our instagram profile there you go we're everywhere at the moment um but yeah i just want to tell as many people as we can about it because i put it together because i felt like you know we should be offering something up to kind of help people um just in these crazy times that have been going on for the past 18 months to nearly two years now um and yeah i've just been blown away and really surprised at the feedback and and um how much everyone's enjoying it it's 100 percent free no catches nothing so just go there um get involved hopefully it helps you to kind of make some changes in your life um but that's available and we're telling everyone about it so um we talked to Mel in today's show and I fucking love this conversation. I got really fired up and passionate when I was talking to her. Um, and it's the theme of it's the theme of the year, um, being authentic. And I actually pushed and challenged myself to put some of my ideas out there and talk through things um, with Mel and kind of put out there what's in my head um, because we're just kind of putting it on the line and, you know, we've, we've sort of decided that we're putting ourselves out there so much on social media this year. So we've got to put our ideas and kind of not be scared to be laughed at or have um, discussions or people disagree with us and all that sort of stuff. So we did that in this episode. Mel has been in the space for ages. She knows the lived experience space well, which we're about to play in heavily as well. So it was just a fascinating conversation. Um, if you want to know about how the drug and alcohol system works, how people with a lived experience fit into it, why some of the things are set up the way they are, discrimination, stigma, all that sort of stuff, I really recommend that you listen to this episode. So without further ado, let's jump into the show. Enjoy. Okay, in three, two, one. Boom, welcome back everyone to another show of Real Drug Talk. Now, again, I, I say this at the start, but I it's funny, right? Um, because of my personal experience, we find on the show that people absolutely love hearing people's stories and I love that too. But for me, I, I think because I, you know, have my own story and talk about that shit all the time, I get really excited when we move into kind of the professional space and we start to talk about things that affect the AOD system and people that work in the AOD system. 
Um, and they're always really, really interesting conversations. And our audience is starting to um, change and adapt and morph, and we're getting more and more professionals in the space and, and other allied health spaces listening to it. So I'm excited today because we've got, I hope you don't mind me saying this, we've got kind of a big dog on, on campus, someone that works in and around the system and has for a long time and holds a significant position. So today we're chatting with Mel Walker from Avil. How you going, mate? I'm good, Jack. Lovely to talk to you this morning, hey? Yeah, so so <laughs> my MO is to mess things up. I do, for everybody listening, I do like understand and know things, but I just kind of make up acronyms in my own head because everything's alphabet soup. So um, you're the CEO of AVIL, but what does AVIL stand for? And just quickly, like, what do you guys do? So AVIL's the Australian Injecting and Illicit Drug Users League. And we're the peak body for the state and territory peer-based drug user organisations. So yep. member organisation in every state and territory who do service delivery. We've got two in Queensland and they do everything from needle and syringe programs, hep C treatment, helping people address their barriers to going into treatment, health promotion, the whole gamut. And they're quite different organisations around Australia. So it's, it's a real privilege to have the job that I have. Wow. So, okay. So, so just to kind of nail down on it a bit further, because I remember when I first found out about AVIL and peak bodies and all this stuff, I, I was even a bit like confused. So uh, your, what is the definition of a peak body, by the way? I've been meaning to ask people that because I get confused. Like, so a peak body is like representative of. Yeah. It represents member organizations and yeah. national peak bodies generally have member organisations in each state and territory, so makes their remit national. But the difference between a national peak body and our member organisations, for instance, our member orgs are very much service delivery. They're on the yep. ground doing the thing, doing the work, and we are their representative body at the national level. So Got it. do a heap of advocacy work. We obviously advocate on issues that are really important for our member organisations and talk to federal government in particular around those issues and also do a lot of collaborative work with other organisations that work in similar spaces. So we don't do service delivery. Our member orgs do the service delivery and we represent their interests. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And and you guys are which is cool, which is very topical for me. Um, and I'm super keen to chat about you guys. Are, yeah, obviously peer, like peer based and focused and all about the peer space and bringing people with a lived experience into, into the fault, I guess, would that be correct? Yeah, totally. And our member organisations are primarily staffed and governed by people with lived experience, both on in their staff and on the board. So they're grassroots organisations representing community, um, populated by people with lived experience who provide services to our community. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Okay, so that's the context for everyone um, because, yeah, I, I think, well, for me anyway, in a selfish way, this is going to be an interesting conversation because it's a space that, you know, we want to play in. So, um just before we start and start talking about the interview, you know, going into the interview and talking about all these topics, something very sad and unfortunate has happened to, to Avil. And yeah, I just, I wanted to throw it over to you to kind of pay homage to it really. Yeah. So something really sad happened to our movement over the weekend. Um, Jude Byrne passed away. Yeah. So a lot of people will know Jude for her work, not just but within the broader alcohol and other drug and bloodborne virus sector. 
Jude has been with Avil for the better part of 25 years. She was with Avil when it started. She was actually the inaugural CEO of Avil um, back in wow. the And not to put too fine a point on it, Jude's the mother of the drug user movement in Australia and has been, you know, an inspiration to the generations coming up. She's worked internationally, um, particularly, you know, with the international network of people who use drugs and with a whole range of international bodies. Um, she's been on boards of organisations such as INSU, um, the Network of Hepatitis and Substance Users. Um, she's been on the board of member organisations. She was on the AVIL board for a time. She's been around the movement for as long as anyone can remember. And I guess for us, you know, we always say to some extent that we stand on the shoulders of giants in the work that we do and the people who've gone before us really laid the foundation for the work that we do today. And mm. the giant whose shoulders I've been standing on for the last four years in this job. Um, I also worked with Jude, I've known her for nearly that whole 25 years, right back when I was a project officer at the former Alcohol and Other Drugs Council of Australia in my early 20s. Mm. Um, Jude was working at Aval and we were co-located my current finance manager was the finance manager for ADCA, the Alcohol and Other Drugs Council back then. So we've known Jude for a very long time. Jude has worked very closely with our member organisations in her role. Most recently, she's been the national coordinator of the National Peer Network. So that's a network of grassroots workers who work in our member organisations. Yeah. experience. And Jude coordinated a national network of those peers to provide workforce development, capacity building, peer support, but also to provide an interface between our organisations and the research community, mm. ensuring that the research that's done at the highest level in this country incorporates the needs and views of, of people who use drugs really as part of their core work. So Jude has been everyone's mum. Mm. And this has just been a devastating blow to all of us this week. And I know that for many people out there, it's a very, very sad time because Jude was well known by many. So I just wanted to acknowledge Jude's wonderful work and in the context of what we're talking about, just really get that thought out there about us standing on the shoulders of giants, you know. We all carry on contribution in the work that we do, but there have been elders and states people that have gone before us who have really felt laid the foundation for the work we do and did the really hard yards back in the days when people who used drugs were not at the table and mm. agitated and ensured that we did get a voice at the table, which we now enjoy. And I know that the work that Jude's done has influenced not just people in our organisations, but researchers, policymakers, politicians. Jude's work will live on and not just through what she's contributed, but through what she's done in building the next generation of community advocates, advocates, harm reduction workers and researchers and ensuring that they're true to the needs of people who use drugs in everything that they do. It really has been a massive contribution and I just want to acknowledge that and also do a little shout out to the many people I know will be affected by Jude's mm. death at this point in time and big hugs to all of you. It's a really sad time for all of us at the moment. Yeah, th thanks. And I, I'm actually, I had heard of Jude quite a lot and I'm sad that I never got to um, yeah, meet her. But the, it's interesting what you say about standing on the shoulders of giants because, and it's it sounds like amazing, you know, the work that she did and, and others in that time because I actually, funnily enough, I often think about, you know, 
years and years ago. You know, I, I sit in government meetings or different focus groups or discussions with people and researchers and stuff. And I, I like, I find myself getting pissed off, you know, and I just think, how can you not get it or do this or do that? You know, whatever it is. Right. And then, and then it's funny. Like sometimes I think randomly I go, wow. Like imagine the people trying to do this stuff 30 years ago when, you know, the discrimination and the, the way that society and people thought about drug and alcohol users, you know what I mean? It just, it just would have been insanely difficult to get things over the line, you know. Totally. And, I mean, we have the luxury of complaining about the frustrations of being at the table. Jude <laughs> and her cohort were the people who ensured that we had a seat at the table. Yeah. So we at least have the conversations that we're having now and that we can enjoy the influence that we can um, in all of those forums that, you know, we, we both participate in now. So I think we need to acknowledge that sometimes it feels like we've, got a hard road to hoe um, and we're running against the wind a little bit, but I think it's really important to acknowledge how far our movement has come in terms of the inclusion of people who use drugs in the development of policies, programs, procedures across the board. And in many ways, we're very fortunate. I know that I talk to a lot of people in the mental health sector and they dream of a day when their consumers um, have the kind of seat at the table that we have and have the level of input and influence to the research and policy agenda that we have. Mm. For all the frustrations of our work and for as much as more work to be done, we really have come a long way in the last 30 years or so. And that's due to the work of people like Jude Byrne, who never gave up. I mean, Jude passed away on Friday night. She was still doing work emails on Wednesday afternoon. My God. Yes, yes Amy Peacock, of course, I'll review that survey for you from hospital. Um, that's how much the work that we do meant to her, such a big part of her life. And I know talking to her children and family, they know how much of a big part of Jude's life this work was and how much it meant. So yeah, and to us to continue that, that work and to acknowledge how far we have come because of the work of people like Jude. And that's the thing, that's the thing that I wanted to, to ask as well that, and, you know, like I was talking to you before we started recording. Um, it's part of what we want to do with this show, particularly when we interview, you know, professionals or people working in the policy space and on the system and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, because at the end of the day, it, like anything is just a group of people doing things. And it is kind of um, like, I know everybody's dedicated in every sector, but in the drug and alcohol space, there's not shitloads of funding, you know, everybody, that, that's no secret. <laughs> so a lot of the work that people do is actually, you know, like I, I try and come into most things that I do, even when I'm frustrated, trying to think everybody's actually just trying to do the right thing and the best that they can, you know, um, because why else would you do it? Because it, it, it really is like a passion, a passion game. Um, and like, what kind of effect does that have when someone like Jude passes away you know, when everybody's giving their heart and soul, I imagine it, it just has a big ripple effect and impacts a lot of people um, on the ground level that are working on stuff. It totally does. And particularly around that mentoring role that mm. our sector play, Jude has been a mentor and a sounding board for so many people who are working in the sector now. And that's gone, you know. And as you say, people dedicate their lives to this work. She was such a repository of knowledge and information. Mm. I'm just 
so glad that I've had the last four years of working directly with her so she could impart some of that um, and talking to the other staff at Able, I know they feel the same. Jude had very strong opinions and views on the work that she did that was formed over the time that she'd, she'd spent in the sector. And she shared those with all of us generously and kindly and talked us through things and helped us to understand how things are now compared to how they used to be and where we need to go. And when you lose someone like that, particularly in a community like ours that, you know, um, doesn't have a lot of outstanding leaders that have a lot of longevity, it really is a huge loss to the sector. And it also raises a heap of issues for people who are around aging. You know, we mm. project in the last couple of years continuing um, around healthy aging for people who use drugs, you know, where, and again, we're really fortunate at this stage that aging is an issue for drug users. Once upon a time, drug users weren't expected to live long enough to need to access aged care services or anything like that. But mm. in needing to access those services, there's a whole range of challenges around the provision of pharmacotherapies, around FC treatment, around pain management, around a whole heap of things that haven't really been thought of in the past. And Jude was leading that work. We have a report on our website around some of the needs. It has some recommendations. But Jude's final project um, with us is working on a podcast for um, aged care workers that looks at the concerns that people who use drugs have around ageing and particularly going into aged care services. Mm. So looking at the workers in that sector and their developmental needs and what they need to support people coming in. And what's going to be a beautiful thing in the next little while is we will be finishing um, the packaging of that podcast series in the next couple of weeks. Cool. So Jude's voice will be heard um, well beyond her passing. And in the next couple of months, you'll be getting wisdom and snippets from Jude across a whole range of issues via the AVIL website, um, even though she has passed. And I think that's further testament to the work that she's done and the value that it has and how her wisdom and expertise will continue to guide us all moving forward. So... It's a huge thing for us, obviously. You know, it's a huge thing for our movement in terms of the loss of Jude. It's also a huge thing, particularly for Jude's cohort of workers who are getting older. And, you know, these are very real issues for them. You know, pain management, the issue of how pain is managed in a palliative care way for people who are on pharmacotherapies mm. and have tolerance to opioid drugs. Those are some really crunchy issues that we were working through as part of the Healthy Aging Project. And it's a little bit ironic that those are some of the issues that Jude had to cross the bridge of in the last few weeks herself. So her insights more relevant than ever in that sense as well. Mm. Yeah. So no, thanks for that. And, you know, so officially this episode is dedicated to Jude um, and all the amazing work that, you know, she put forward in the peer space because it is what we're going to be talking about and talking about on the show a lot um, and something that we want to, perpetuate and and just on that i guess it's 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 kind of an interesting thing that i've noticed about the drug and alcohol space at large but the peer the peer space too is i guess most people think about drugs and alcohol and they just you know it's you just automatically jump to addiction and treatment you know well i i think that's what most people kind of think about but when you pop open the can of worms, <laughs> there's just like so many different issues that present themselves and so many challenging things to work through. You know, like how hard is it for you guys to sit down, work with the organizations that you represent 
to prioritize what you're going to go after and advocate for in policy and how do you actually do that? Oh, look, it's huge. And, you know, the remit of ABLE has broadened over the time that we've been an organisation. Mm. ABLE was initially funded around the HIV epidemic in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Very strong focus on injecting drug use and transmission of bloodborne viruses in that context. But over the years, our remit has broadened. Um, that's why ABLE is still ABLE by acronym, but that doesn't match the name anymore. Yeah. And injecting an illicit drug users league now but AVIL was the acronym when it was the Australian intravenous league and just because so many people were familiar with the acronym when we broadened the name we decided to keep the acronym because it was so synonymous with the work that we do but we've broadened even further over the last four years or so that I've been in the organization our strategic plan is not just around people who currently use drugs but people who have used drugs mm-hmm. that arise from that um, but you're right it's huge and the, the analogy that I sometimes use in terms of drug use is around, you know, the AIHW does the National um, Drug Strategy Household Survey every few years. Mm-hmm. And that over 40% of the population at any given point in time has used illicit drugs. And sometimes I say to people, look, you know, a lot of people use alcohol, um, but most of them are not the stereotype that people think of. You know, everyone who drink has a drink is not lying on a park bench with a brown paper bag, you know, and yeah. drug use. It's something like 5 to 10% of people who use any given drug, drug will have a dependence problem. Um, and that's, the case. it varies, but that's the case across the board. But what about the other 90 to 95% of people who have other issues around their drug use that aren't dependence? Things around criminalisation and how that plays out. Things around transmission of bloodborne viruses and the prevention thereof. Um, you know, there's so much in our space that we need to wrap our head around and also the interface between our issues and other issues impacting on our community, the idea of complex needs, of disability, um, things like fetal alcohol spectrum disorder that I know you and I are going to talk about soon because we're both projects in that area. But people don't live their lives neatly within portfolios and people (laughs) have a range of issues that are not just health issues. There's issues around housing. There's issues around custody of children. There's issues around homelessness for people who are who are really affected by dependence and are transitioning out of treatment. So it's really a balancing act. And also we need to be proactive to the environment around us and particularly the political environment. Mm-hmm. Things driving are big for us at the moment in terms of the impact that that has on people. Um, mm-hmm few little stories I could share about that, but you're right. Yes, obviously, we need to remain focused on people who have dependence problems and look at the fact that, you know, we know between 200 and 500,000 people are turned away from drug treatment every year because of a lack of capacity in the system. Mm-hmm. That's that's really outrageous. So we need to... Or, capacity or, in the or they don't meet the assessment criteria. <laughs> well, that's before you even go there. Um, But we know that there's not enough drug treatment available for the people who need it. We know that the out-of-pocket expenses around opioid pharmacotherapies are a significant barrier to people who are wanting to access that treatment in particular. There are a heap of barriers to people accessing treatment, but there are also a heap of other issues. You know, hepatitis C is now the leading causes of liver disease in our country Mm. um, and liver cancer and transplantation and all of that sort of thing. 
And that's about lack of access to sterile injecting equipment and transmission around people who inject drugs, but also with rates of methamphetamine use in particular and some of the problems associated with that. Bloodborne viruses and sexually transmissible infections are not just about people who inject drugs anymore. There's issues around methamphetamine use in terms of sex. And for one of a better way to put it, and I've tried to explain this, you'll love this, Jack, in meetings with um, policymakers <laughs> and the logistics of this. And I've often referred to the carpet burn effect. <laughs> so if you use methamphetamine, you can have sex for a lot longer and you tend to be a lot more vigorous. That gives rise to bleeding um, and those sort of abrasions. So those sort of issues have become a thing in terms of the transmission of bloodborne viruses. So it's not just about injecting drug use, it's about looking at changing trends and issues and prioritising our interventions and our health promotion activities accordingly and empowering people to be able to prevent those sort of problems that are not just around dependence and addiction, but around the many impacts that drug use and prohibition and lack of access to services can give rise to in our community. And in particular, you know, in the national bloodborne virus and sexually transmissible infection strategy space, we're looking at the elimination of hep C in Australia. Um, that's a realistic thing. We've now got access to these incredible direct an acting antiviral drugs that were put on the PBS, I think around 2016. And yet we still don't have access to the means of prevention for people in custodial settings. We know that people in custodial settings are overrepresented in terms of rates of drug use. Mm. We know people in custodial settings are still using injecting equipment despite the best efforts of authorities. And yet we don't have access to sterile needle and syringes in prison, despite the fact that that's written into the five national strategies that have been signed off by every government in Australia. Mm. I guess this is a long-winded answer to your question, but yes, we have a range of priorities. Um, obviously, we are proactive in terms of addressing the issues that reflect the needs of our member organisations and lack of access to treatment is a huge part of that. Also, the issue of decriminalisation. There's been steps in New South Wales and the ACT recently to move in that direction, and that's obviously very exciting for us as well. Mm. Um, drug testing, and I use that term deliberately, not just pill testing, drug testing, because um, most people will have noticed there's a bit of an issue with fentanyl internationally. Mm. Um, and so we need to be focused on the broader concept of drug testing, not just pill testing at festivals. There's a whole range of things mm. AVIL needs to be a part of in terms of advocacy. And, yeah, I guess that's our perennial challenge is to prioritise that list and try and leverage off opportunities in the external political and policy environment to ensure that our priorities are um, heard going forward. 100%. It's um, just, I just, excuse my black humour, but I just had this visual of, you know, you sitting in in a in a government room with some bureaucrats all in blue suits trying to explain methed up sex to them. You know. <laughs> oh yes, that was a beautiful conversation. I really enjoyed that one at BBVSS. Like, but please, Melanie, explain how is there blood to blood contact? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's it is really interesting, and just even you know that's off. I know you work in this every day and, and all, all the different things that you just brought up is, is kind of off the top of your head. And there's, you know, there's so much more. There's, there's, there's so many. So I want to ask just before we dive into some of those topics, um, if you don't mind, like, how did you get into this space? You know, I think, I think that's something that people are always interested in. Like, you know, 
what particularly I know for me, like service, I'm, I was always interested as someone that was accessing services and still to this day when I'm going through and talking to people, why, why, are, you, why are you doing what you're doing? Like what's your connection to it? Um, it's just, I think it's interesting. Yeah. So what inspired you to get into this space? Yes, yeah, so it was never my intention to have um, a 20-year career in drug policy and the drug policy space. I <laughs> did journalism at uni. Um, oh, wow. Was, yeah, I was going to be a broadcast journalist and I did that for about two seconds. Um, but I guess where I grew up in a town called Gunnedah in northwest New South Wales, um, a lot of disadvantage, a lot mm-hmm. of abuse around my peer group. Um, I had a lot of friends who went on to develop drug problems and you know, there was nothing out where I came from. There certainly wasn't any cold treatment facilities. There was a very punitive approach to any sort of drug use by police. Mm. Back in the day out there, I can't speak to how it is now. I hope it's a lot better. But certainly, you know, drug use was very much something to be hidden and very much something that your parents were terrified that you might do because then you <laughs> end up in jail or dead. Um And I guess my personal experience with drug use as a young person growing up in that environment and then watching the challenges that some of my friends faced when they became part of that 5 to 10% who actually did have dependence issues and needed treatment, Mm. something that kind of inspired me at the micro level to try and find solutions for the problems that presented for us. And then in understanding the systemic challenges that there were in trying to address those problems in terms of access to treatment, in terms of the means of prevention, particularly as well around access to any sort of facilities in rural, regional and remote areas. I kind of learnt a lot about that. And having left uni and gone on to work in um, public service environments and NGO environments, I found there was nothing that interested me more. You know, what's more interesting than something that captures your own personal experience and then developing an insight of how things could be done better. And I've been really, really fortunate to have had opportunities throughout my career to have a seat at the table and have a say on these things and to hopefully do things that have made a difference to the people, not just that I grew up with, but Mm. people who have been in those situations as well. So lived experience, yeah, of course. Um, But also, I've really been very fortunate to meet people like Jude and to have a series of mentors who've been able to show me how I can apply that personal experience in a policy way and how we can use our lived experience to illustrate persuasive arguments around things like how people have sex when they're on meth. It's really important to be able to bring people to the table who can have conversations from lived experience about about things. Mm. There really is... I've certainly found in in policy circles and in government, people aren't evil and wanting to not do anything good. No, that's right. Necessarily understand what the problem is or what to do about it. So if you can break it down into some case studies and some examples and go, well, this happened and that's an example of why this system isn't working um, in this context and how would we go about addressing that person's barriers to accessing services in that way? It just makes such a big difference. And just being able to illustrate those challenges in a human way, I think really resonates with policymakers. So I've been very fortunate to be able to hopefully use my lived experience in a positive way um, to try and make a difference for, you know, the community that I came from. Mm, Very interesting. And 
that's actually something that I want to touch on. And I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about this. We, we've done a little bit. We had a, a lady who you've probably heard of, um, Shanna Wan on um, from Sober in the Country. Um, but I want to get some more people on and you just brought it up there. The rural and regional piece or regional and rural piece, like it's, it's actually the, the deeper you dive into it, it actually freaks me out just at the lack of nothingness that exists in the alcohol and drug space and the unique kind of challenges that face people. It's just really tough. It's really tough. It should freak you out. It should freak everyone out. And I think, you know, in the projects we've done in the last couple of years and particularly recently the healthy ageing one that I spoke to you about that Jude was leading, you know, we really live in two different countries and it's not about... (laughs) boundaries it's about metropolitan versus non-metropolitan and you know there's barriers to accessing services in metropolitan areas but at least there are services in metropolitan areas for is to access them in rural regional and remote australia there's nothing so you know heaven forbid if someone should get in trouble with the use of methamphetamines and need some sort of intervention in the country you're not going to someone who's got any expertise in drug and alcohol you're fronting up to the local hospital and taking potluck as to whether anyone thinks you deserve care there and secondly whether there's anyone there who knows what to bloody do about it you know so things um, naloxone um, naloxone programs and ensuring that naloxone is out there for people who use drugs in rural and regional and remote communities is so vital because you can't guarantee that there's actually going to be any sort of professional help to assist you I think, you know, Uniting's campaign and their long walk for treatment video that that got done a couple of years ago, um, you know, and that basically told the story of a young woman got coming from Dubbo and how far it actually was they did a walk to Sydney to um, the nearest treatment facility just to demonstrate how hard it was. And recently in the last couple of years in the context of the... um, the thankfully not currently pursued policy around um, welfare drug testing, so drug... Mm -hmm. people on social security benefits um in a lot of the conversations that i had with politicians and government members around that it's like dude it's pointless we've got 200 to 500 people in australia being turned away from treatment right now every year pretty sure they know they've got a drug problem Mm. pretty sure there's no point looking for people and and drug testing people who are on social security trying to identify people who've got drug problems when we've already got 500,000 people here lined up for treatment that can't get in what's the point of identifying that someone's got a drug problem if you then actually can't provide them with attention can i ask you a question about can i ask you a question about that welfare drug testing thing just just 100% 100% agree with you. Let's let's just say though, in an ideal, if we lived in an ideal world, right, and we did have sufficient funding and we did have service infrastructure set up behind it, do you think drug testing in welfare would then be something that would be a good thing or or helpful? Well, not according to the countries that have done it before us. Um, right actually found really low levels of drug use around people in who are on social security in countries like New Zealand other countries who've tried it have actually scrapped it because it wasn't particularly useful mm-hmm. because surprisingly poor people who don't have much money tend not to spend that much on drugs unless they've got a dependence problem mm. that's a small proportion of people who are using drugs as a whole mm. so 
we can't even provide treatment to those people. Like, and drug testing is actually really expensive. It's mm. an expensive labour-intensive intervention. If we go back to the rural, regional and remote space, what if there's not a pathology lab within Kui of the place? Like, it's actually not viable and incredibly expensive to do. Wouldn't we be better off using that money to actually fund drug treatment places mm. who already know they've got a drug problem and want some help? Mm. I mean, do you feel if you're on social security and you've been trying to get into detox and rehab for six months and then they send you off to go weigh in a cup or have a blood test to see if you've got a drug problem when you've already put your hand up and said you have mm. i actually think the issue here is barriers to access to services and mm. if the problem was that people were in denial when they had drug problems and they didn't want to get help then maybe that would be a thing but the evidence shows that's not the case when people have dependence issues, they're coming forward, they're wanting help, mm. and they can't get it. And we've found in terms of decriminalisation, the ACT um, decriminalised cannabis use 12 months ago. What we've found with that here in the ACT is that more people are now coming forward for help with cannabis use mm. problem because they're not worried about criminalisation or stigmatisation or losing their jobs and those sorts of things. So actually, all we need to do is provide enough services for the people who need them, and then lo and behold, they will take up the opportunity for help. Mm. You know, we don't need to punish people into accessing treatment if they need it. All we have to do is actually provide treatment places for mm. the people who need it, and then they will take them. So mm. it's, it's a bit of a myth, um, and certainly in the countries where they've brought it in, it hasn't been cost-effective, and it hasn't been something that they've decided to pursue. So I yeah. think a bit of... One of those things where on the face of it, for people who don't have a strong understanding of that context around the absence of capacity in the drug treatment sector, it's like, why are people going and getting the drug treatment if they need mm. it? It's not because they need to be herded into it. It's because there's not enough drug treatment there. 100%. And explain that to people, they're like, oh, really? Is that what's going on? It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's that. How about we, if we've got some money spare, how about we actually spend it on increasing the capacity of the drug treatment sector. And I'm not just talking about resi rehab beds, although that's hard, but, you know, I spoke briefly about the barriers to accessing pharmacotherapy for opioid dependence. The costs are significant. And someone who is not doing well to engage in treatment, and this is a gold standard treatment that's been proven to do a really good job, why aren't we doing something about addressing the financial barriers to people engaging in those programs? And that's that I know a number of people have been looking up, looking at, and a number of groups are looking at and doing advocacy around in terms of the federal budget. Because what we want to do is make drug treatment more accessible to the people who need it. And whether that's around more spaces in resi rehabs or addressing some of the financial barriers to engaging in treatment, we really need to look at that. And then I'm pretty sure you'll find that the people who are wanting to access drug treatment will get it. And a lot of the social problems that people are worried about will be addressed. But we know what the answer is. We've known how many people are waiting for drug treatment for years now. The New Horizons report was commissioned by the Department of Health years ago. Um, but we haven't seen an investment that reflects that need, you know. So how about we stop looking for new answers when we haven't addressed the problems that are already identified? Yeah, 100%. I love that. And just quickly for some context for everyone, I, I don't know if you'd agree, Mel, but I, I've just had a situation recently that's happened. So you're right, going right back to the start of that point, there, there really is two worlds in Australia. There's metropolitan and, and then rural, regional and remote. 
Um, so, so if we just take the rural, regional, and remote part out of it, and you know the other, um, you know, called services, you know, culturally appropriate services out of the picture, right? And apologies to everyone, I've still got <laughs> works happening in my house, so if you can hear drills in the background, I'm sorry. But the thing that I've actually seen with services, right, is that I don't know. I, I'm almost now on the side of in, in some areas or definitely what I'm seeing here in Melbourne is that I think that there can be more services hundred percent and there needs to be, but I'm actually seeing more problems with the system and the way that those services are structured, you know, and we're talking about before like assessment criteria, um, I like, and again, I think it's easy to talk about this because this is no reflection on the people working in those services. It's it's about the structural system set up and, and how it operates. But yeah, I, I like to call it exclusion criteria because what I've actually found anecdotally talking to different service providers is that there is rehab beds available. You know, like most rehabs will sit at sort of 80% capacity or less. Um, sometimes and there is outpatient services available um things like that but people can't access it in an appropriate time frame you know so they can't get the help when they need it there and then it's six months away because the assessment process is front-loaded or they have co-occurring issues which fucking hello is like super common like i don't know a human that comes with like one issue to anything in life and because of those different co-occurring issues whether it be social you know determinants of health or you know other health issues or whatever it might be they get told no you can't access this service because it's your mental health or it's your you got to take care of this physical health first or you've got to be like sober to access this service and You've got to call us every day, <laughs> like until you're sober to get into this service. And meanwhile, that person is like, you know, acutely unwell with mental health and struggling to have a shower every day, let alone ring someone, you know, so that's kind of, and I don't know if you would agree with that. That's where I actually see the problems. I think if we could just go, all right, let's stop talking about extra funding in metropolitan areas for a second and let's focus on maybe opening things up a little bit or funding front-end communication and increasing access to services. Maybe we'd have a better result. I don't know. Do you, do you agree with that or do you, do you think that's oh, a bit look, You're going model? into one of my um, pet spaces, which is complex <laughs> needs. Um, yes, we have a lot of people with complex needs and if you have more than one issue going simultaneously, it's very difficult to access many service systems. You know, to be fair, I think probably the drug and alcohol sector has done a better job than the mental health sector in this space. Mm. I know a lot of resi rehabs have now broadened their criteria around people suffering depression and anxiety, um, but still have exclusion criteria around people with more severe mental health issues such as schizophrenia um, and bipolar because those mm. people do need some more specialised care. But what's really difficult is when mental health services exclude people because drug and alcohol is an issue. So um, let me give you an example. In one jurisdiction that will remain nameless, there is a mental health crisis team that you supposedly ring when someone is having a mental health crisis. But if that person has used any drugs and alcohol, 
they won't come. So if you have someone who is schizophrenic off their medication, but they've had one beer today or in the last 24 hours, not a mental health problem anymore. It's a drug and alcohol problem. Now, clearly the, the schizophrenia and the being off the meds is more of an issue than the one beer that person had yesterday, but you cannot get the mental health crisis team to come. And that's a story, a story that we've heard over and over. And what it does mean for drug and alcohol services pro providers is they do become the last port of call for many people who have not been well served by other parts of the health system and I think that's a real challenge and I think in an ongoing way it's a challenge to ensure that services in the drug and alcohol space are enabled to interface better with mental health services and housing services and other services and back when I was deputy CEO of the Public Health Association of Australia we started something called the National Complex Needs Alliance mm. and I went about with my CEO and spoke to people in different departments and said, you know, it's really hard when you're trying to get someone into drug treatment and then they come out homeless. Um, it's really hard when you've got people who can't get their children minded while they need to go into drug treatment. You know, we have these exit points and entry points and none of it's coordinated and it's really hard. And what would be really good is if there was some acknowledgement in funding agreements or some incentive in service funding agreements for organisations across the board to work together around these transitions and these ins and out parts of the system. And universally in going to the health department, um, FACSER, Prime Minister and Cabinet, everyone's, hmm, that's very interesting, isn't that terrible? But it doesn't fit neatly within our portfolio. We only have this bit. And we're like, yeah, that's kind of the point. So as a funded organisation, and I know myself, for Ava, we're funded for BBVSTI work. Mm. Do a lot of work in the alcohol and other drug sector space, but none of that's funded. And technically, we're only funded to do BBVSTI work. And anything we do beyond that is a bonus, but I don't get to report on it against my contracts. It's not acknowledged in any way because that's not what we're funded to do. And talking to some of the drug and alcohol, particularly resi service providers, they're like, look, we know that we have an issue around entry points and around addressing people's barriers to getting into treatment. And then also around ensuring you know, that, con that continuity in terms of their transition to the community. But we're not allowed to use our funding for any of that. We're only allowed to do the drug and alcohol treatment intervention, mm. not pull our staff off to be doing housing work because that's not what we're funded to do and we'd be defunded if we used our money for that. So I think at a policy level, there is a lot of talk about complex needs and the connections between services and how important that is for outcomes. But where the rubber meets the road in terms of contracting, it isn't reflected. And so you can have all the policies you want saying, wouldn't it be nice if people work together, yo-yo? But if funding contracts actually preclude you from doing that, like not just don't encourage you to do that, but actually prevent you from doing that by saying that that's a misuse of funds because you're only allowed to stay in your lane and do the thing that you're funded for through this portfolio, mm. going to be an ongoing challenge because there is, we had a National Complex Needs Conference around the creation of this group. And there were some great examples of services that were working together at the local level. So housing services, working with family and community services, working with AID, working with mental health, but they're all doing it in spite of their funding, not because of it. It was all things that people were doing because they were passionate about their work and they could see a need. But that was stuff they're having to do at nights and on weekends and around their core business because it wasn't reflected in anyone's funding agreements. You know, I think we really need to be careful not to be critical of services 
in terms of the limitations of what they can do and actually put a bit of that back onto governments and back onto government agencies around how they fund things. Mm. There not be a clause that says, and it would be really good if you use some of this money around collaborations to enhance the outcomes that um, align with what your service is doing. Um, Because housing and homelessness is huge, you know. Everyone knows that housing and homelessness is huge in terms of barriers to people going into treatment. So if you're in public housing and you want to go to Resi Rehab for a long period of time, you can potentially lose your public housing Mm -hmm. because you've been there for long enough. Um, You know, and coming out, if you can't go into a stable environment after you've completed a treatment episode, you know, I remember like 20 years ago when I was running a drug treatment service here in the ACT, I helped a... Oh, so you ran you ran a uh, drug treatment yes, service? I've, oh. Yes, I've actually been the coordinator of a drug service here in the ACT 20 years ago. And our job, we were funded to help people address their barriers to going into treatment and then mm-hmm. to transition back into the community. But I'll never forget it because it was, yes, an extreme experience. But this one girl who I'd helped to go to detox, and you know how hard it is to get someone into detox in a timely way. Fuck she, me. It's ridiculous. Indeed. In a really, really, it was really hard. She was doing really well. Anyway, I tried my lot, the, my heart out to find accommodation for her coming out, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't get her into rehab when she came out of detox and I couldn't get her accommodation. So I went and picked her up, you know, and broke the news. I'm like, look, you know, how about you come and sit with me in the office while I try? She's fine. Um, my dealer said I can come and stay at his place and I'll stay in the spare room and it'll be fine because people won't use it in front of me. And I was just like, oh. And then a week later, she rings up. She's like, oh, I've busted. I'm I'm a terrible person. I'm like, you're not a terrible person. How is that not going to happen? I know. You know, how is that not going to happen? But there, you know, there was an episode of treatment that had been successful. She was doing really well. But it hadn't connected properly at the end of it. And so, therefore, the gains were lost. And she actually felt like crap because she felt like she had failed in some way. When really she hadn't failed, the frigging system had failed her. And it was just devastating to me as a young drug and alcohol worker. I felt like I had failed her, but I couldn't magic housing out of a hat, you know. Mm. In terms of other barriers to treatment, I think I've told you the story, you know, at the beginning of COVID, I was trying to help a young Aboriginal man get into drug and alcohol treatment. That's a whole can of worms as well. Jeez. Well, we had not only the usual barriers, but then we had COVID. And so there were a heap of lockdowns, facilities shut down. They weren't doing intake because they had to keep the current residents safe. Or half capacity, yeah. Was way harder than it would have been normally. So in March, I was trying to get into drug treatment by April. And I spent the most of last year assisting with his criminal defence because he had not got into treatment in a timely way, had drug-related crime and therefore has spent the last year in a custodial facility instead. Wouldn't it have been nicer if we could have got him into treatment in a timely way? Wouldn't that have been better for everyone? Wouldn't it have been cheaper? Wouldn't it have had less long-term impacts? But, you know, if, I, if I'm if i the CEO of AVIL and I've worked in this sector for 20 years and I know a million people and I can't get someone into drug treatment by pulling every favour that I've got, what hope does Joe Blow on the street have in getting themselves in somewhere, you know. It, and I, I have this conversation with people who work in our sector all the time. It's like knowing all the people in the world doesn't help you when there just aren't the places available or the barriers are too great. Or people put in Herculean efforts on 
on their own rehabilitation and care and then they're let down by systems and then end up back where they started. You know, if we create some more continuity of care and give people stable housing and do the things that people need, then I'm sure they'd do a lot better in terms of their health and social outcomes moving forward. So, you know, it's not, as you say, it's not just about drug treatment places, although that would be a good place to start if people could actually get into treatment start with it's also about the connective bits have they got somewhere to live afterwards you know what are the implications of this going forward and it's the same with when we talk about decriminalization you know the vast majority of people who use drugs when they're young go on a stop of their own volition like they get a haircut and get a real job and be boring 100 percent, like me um but the trouble is if you get a criminal record when you're younger, that then prevents you from entering a whole heap of professions, you know. So why are we stopping people? We're saying we want you to give up drugs, do better, go to treatment, do this, and then we prevent them from having the life we say we want them to have afterwards. We really need to think about the way we frame this. And, you know, like we were talking about in terms of the social security stuff, why be punitive when people don't need it or respond to it? You know, here we have half a million people who want to go to drug treatment who are going, hey, I've got a problem. Can I go to drug treatment, please? And we're saying no. And then we're going to punish them for continuing to use drugs when they've already said they can't stop and they need help and mm. we talking about it. Like, it's just, it's madness. And when you can explain that to people the way that it actually is, they're like, oh, well, yeah. You know, and that's why I feel like, I'm really privileged to have the job that I have because I get to go and tell that story to politicians and have them go, shit, is it really that simple, Mel? Yeah, kind of is. I've got to, uh, just as you're talking, I realised I've got to talk to you more because when I'm when we're having this conversation, I can feel the uh, passion rising up in me. So it's good. Um, <laughs> so uh, a couple of things there, and it's interesting, right? I'm with you 100%, and I want to make that kind of clear to to everyone is that when I say things about the alcohol and drug space, I'm never ever criticizing the people that work in it because I, I'm with you hundred percent. I truly believe that it's not even really the services per se either. Like sometimes they can be bad services, but it, it really for me is like a, a representation of the system structurally and how that impacts everything. Um, and how it sets so many things up to fail from organisations and consumers accessing the services. Um, but it's interesting, right? I've been talking to a few people that helped me out with different things and, that, and they said, Jack, like, it's time that you uh, get a little bit more courage and start kind of saying what you really think or like putting ideas out there because it's funny, right? Like, I feel like, and this has been a bit of my evolution in like the advocacy space and just finding my finding my feet a little bit um you know i feel like i have some different ideas and i actually think that the the sector needs to have an injection of innovation and and some different ideas to not come up with new solutions but fix the problems that we already have right um and i think one of the big ones is funding models so like what would you think because i've been looking a lot at like the ndis model right and how that operates and everything that we've just been talking about with like block funding and, and all those sorts of things. So just for the listeners, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to try and do a really quick blow by blow of how it works, which you explain, but 
most of the alcohol and drug um, services that get funded by government are funded in block funding for like a period of time and they'll get a certain allocation of money and that'll be dispersed into whatever service it is and then they'll provide that service for a certain period of time. Is that an easy way to kind of describe it? Kind of. Um, probably missing the bit where <clears throat> a lot of the time they don't get a lot of continuity and so it's very hard to service plan. If Correct. Contracts, blah, 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 blah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And with that block funding, there's so many, there's so many challenges that that provides and represents right what would you what would you think about in some segments of the alcohol and drug space so let's maybe just focus on the treatment side of things because the treatment segment of the alcohol and drug space is completely different to like i don't know what you call it but some of the harm minimization interventions in terms of like nsps it's a totally different goal of a service delivery right but let's just take treatment what would you what what would you think of like an NDIS model for that kind of segment of the alcohol and drug sector where in theory, um, I know there's lots of problems with NDIS as well, but people are actually getting the funds given to them and they're getting choice at to what they feel that they need that they could spend it on so they could maybe spend it on housing or um, you know, some kind of resi rehab or maybe it's an outpatient program, but they get the choice. Like what would you think of something more along that lines? I think it's an interesting question, but to be honest, I don't think it's viable at this point in time. And let me tell you why. Yeah. There's just not the services to buy. Um, uh -huh. We've seen this in, particularly in Victoria and the recent exposés around some of the private rehabs the unregulated private rehab. I've got the article up. I'm going to ask you about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wait, I'm going there too. We, what we don't want is people being given money to empower them to buy those sort of shit services because there's nothing else there. Uh -huh. What we have here is an issue where, and I keep coming back to it, we don't have enough spaces in publicly funded programs for people to get in. And so it doesn't matter if people have a bunch of cash in their hand, if there's not the places for people to buy, it's not going to solve the problem. And I know certainly with the NDIS and going back to rural, regional and remote areas, it's a bit of an abrogation of responsibility to give someone a stack of money and go, go buy your services if there's no services for you to buy in where you live. Um, so you can have the biggest, flashiest NDIS plan you want, but if those categories of services aren't actually funded and available in the area where you live, it's not going to actually do you any good. And I think just in terms of the example you've used, if we were further down the line and we had a drug and alcohol sector that was funded to meet the current demand in the system, then people could perhaps have some choice around what services they wanted to purchase. So but yeah, we don't even have the infrastructure for people to purchase. And what I would mm. hate to see is that what I see is an abrogation of responsibility. You just can't hand a bunch of money to someone and go solve your problems if there's no one to help them solve their problems. Yeah still no viable housing and there's still no viable treatment services that they can get into. And I think we also really need to have a look at what's happened with some of these private providers. What's caused that? What's caused people to be desperate enough to mortgage their house, to bloody send their kid to some facility that's dodgy as and isn't accredited? Because they can't get into the public system and they can't access treatment any other way and they're desperate. Mm. E, Yes, there's an issue around regulation of private providers, but 
but the primary issue is that demand is being driven out of desperation by people who are trying to get into treatment and bloody well can't. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more with you. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I've been having this argument with a lot of people. I hundred percent agree with like the articles and what is said in there and think that there needs to be regulate. I'm for it. And am trying to talk to lots of people about trying to make that happen. But I a hundred percent agree with you. There's too, I feel like there's too many people just going, oh, those fucking private providers and we're missing the real issue, which is underfunded system problems, um, exclusion criteria, all that stuff that happens in the public system that is pushing people to act out in that way out of desperation. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, in any sector, there's terrible people who'll take advantage of people's misery if there's a business opportunity in it. And what we need to do to mitigate that is not just about regulating the private sector, it's ensuring that people can actually access publicly funded services and the publicly funded services are available and the barriers to access are removed. And I'm talking about pharmacotherapies as well. And if people were able to access services in that way, they wouldn't be going to Dodgy Brothers Rehab out in the burps, you know, mm. not going there because they want to. That's not genuine choice. And I think an NDIS model in the context of the current infrastructure that we have could potentially be disastrous. And if we go back to rural, regional and remote, you know, when the NDIS was brought in, in those areas in particular, what that meant was that some of the block funding that you're talking about for disability service providers was withdrawn um, because it was put into NDIS. Mm. What it meant was a heap of services that were funded because there was a need but they weren't turning a profit um, actually went broken shut. So in a lot of regional areas, the amount of services that were available to people with disability actually contracted. So even if you got a gold-plated NDIS plan, your local service providers had shut down and were gone. So mm. kind of a moot point. And I think we just need to be careful what we wish for. If we were working in an environment where there were enough service providers and enough capacity that people could then exercise genuine choice, then totally I hear you. But I just think there's too many potential unintended consequences. We would need to build the infrastructure to the point where people could actually exercise choice before we could inflict that on anyone. But what about... Like, because my, my thing is Mel, right? And like, I'm, I, it's good because even though we're recording this, I feel safe to have this conversation with you. And this is why, you know, I'm become fonder and fonder of you every time I speak to you. But And I'm like, sorry, I'm uh, killing your NDIS. No, model. no, 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 because I, I agree actually with what you're saying, right? Um, but like my my fundamental thing, right, with the block funding is that, or one of my fundamental problems with the alcohol and drug space, and I'll get back to the private stuff in a second, but I, I actually think, right, that because I come at this from like a service consumer perspective and I feel like as a service consumer, we deserve the best services possible, you know? Um, and right now I think there's not a good enough job being done to help people to come around to providing that best service for the end consumer. And I think it's too much about other stuff and not the end consumer, right? And what they need. And, and the reason I say that is because 
like the problem that I see with block funding is that there's all those problems with the funding models. There's no continuity of um, uh, stability in funding, all that, all that sort of stuff. But there's also for me, like if you actually look under the hood at a lot of services, there's no real like outcome measures. Um, in, we're talking about treatment here. There's no real outcome measures outlined for a lot of treatment services. There's just a lot of stuff is measured on throughput, you know, and, and I don't see a lot of stuff being measured on outcomes related to why the service is set up. And, and I largely see a lot of stuff happening where I feel like that people aren't incentivized enough to provide a better service, whether that's in a fundamentally the, the pay, the amount of money that they get paid for the incredibly fucking hard job that they have to do. Um, the, the, the kind of, uh, what do you call it? Like the, the feedback or the, um, scrutiny put on an app, like a positive outcome. There's nothing kind of, I feel there's not good enough structures keeping services accountable to, well, what are you actually doing? Like what value are you providing to that person? How can you demonstrate that in quality of life or, reduction in drug use or whatever it might be for that person. Um, and I don't think there's enough of that happening. And, and what happens is that I just see kind of people just cycling through the system and not really getting this full brunt of a service given to them. And, and I actually think one of the best solutions that we could have is that if we spent the next, as a sector, we spent the next 12 to 15 months focusing on the regulation piece and the quality frameworks and actually getting those over the line, right? And actually getting them cemented. What is a good service in the different segments? How do you define it? What are some good outcomes? What makes up a good service? These are the evidence-based practices. This is how you regulate it. This is how you register to be regulated. All that stuff's in place. And then we actually move it to something like an NDIS model. And then I think what you'll naturally see happen is that the regulation is in the background first so that there is that accountability for people. But then there's kind of that, there's a bit of that free market approach to help people to innovate and create the right services for people, you know, like, and again, I agree with you. I think that's different in regional areas, 100%. But in the metro areas, like, yeah, it just seems like a bit more of a logical path to take. I don't know. It's a bit of a rant, but it's just, yeah. It's no, just... no, I think, you know, you're going somewhere good, but there's a couple of clarifications. I think publicly funded services, um, you know, and certainly the ones that are members of the drug and alcohol peaks in the state and territories, they do frameworks. They are working to outcome measures. They are doing the best they can. But we find that they're not... Like none of that's actually funded. None of that's work is actually funded either. So again, there's the disincentive for the continued implementation of that. And then we're finding that they're having to compete with their two bucks fifty worth of funding with private providers who have shiny websites but don't have any, you know, accreditation frameworks or any of that stuff in place. But the other thing is certainly my experience in the drug and alcohol sector. I don't think it's a for-profit sector. I think this is an investment by government in the outcomes that we want to purchase. And the outcomes that we want to purchase are helping people to get to a better place in their life, to help them to engage in community, in education, employment, um, become good taxpaying citizens, yeah? 
And I think it's totally legitimate for governments to pay um, to fund services that achieve that outcome, which ultimately pays dividends in terms of people's participation in society. So I really think that coming back to the point, we need a stronger investment in public infrastructure in the drug and alcohol sector. And it's not just about the bricks and mortar, like the thing that you're talking about where rehabs sometimes have beds empty and aren't operating at full capacity. Often that's around absence of workforce. So as you say, it's really hard to um, recruit and retain staff because it's not like people are doing this for the cash and the glory. These are bloody hard jobs and they're not paid well. We've seen a situation where um, none of the federal funding that's been doled out, there haven't been CPI increases. So wages have gone up, the expenses of wages have gone up for services and yet their funding has not gone up to match that. Mm. So what happens then is you either employ less people or you pay people peanuts that are substandard. Can't do that. There's legislative requirements around awards. So what that means is that some facilities are operating understaffed. So there might be bed spare, but there's no staff. They can't pay for staff to actually service the beds. So it's about looking at the thing as a whole. But I really think there needs to be a much stronger investment in the publicly funded infrastructure um, that is at the moment operated under frameworks and standards and accreditation that's appropriate. If we could empower those services through giving them reasonable capacity to actually do that work, that would be great. But I think what you're saying is also correct in that. But do you really think there is yeah, the finish, outcome, me outcome measures? Let me finish, I'm getting to that. But also it's the connecty bits. In terms of the outcome measures you're talking about, particularly longer term outcomes for people leaving treatment episodes and stuff, it's that housing stuff. It's that what have we got in terms of through care? You can have the best and shiniest drug and alcohol intervention in the world and your rehab can be awesome. But if the person's then released into homelessness and has no support because your service isn't funded to support them once they walk out the door, then of course that's going to have an impact on outcomes as well. Until these endeavours are actually appropriately funded and that some of this, the funding frameworks are conscious of those transitions, it's it's not really fair to whip services about outcomes they can't achieve when they're completely under-resourced to do so, if you know what I mean. Oh, I agree. I agree. And if we then had all that, all that shit, if people were properly funded, if there was consideration of through care and services were funded to do that, then we could start holding them properly to account around outcomes and people could have choice. But at the moment, we're still back at the everything's so badly under-resourced, it's a miracle they're doing anything after all. Yeah, and I, I agree. Again, it's it's really not about the services. They're just playing in the framework and the game that they're given, right? But just going back to your point, because I, th I think it's really interesting. Like what you said about the housing thing, right? Like so, so just of my small understanding of NDIS, right? But just let's say, for example, and this would be nowhere near enough, for like drug treatment but at the end of the day somebody pays for it right like whether it's taxpayer dollars or it's privately funded or however it's funded somebody's paying for the service so i i think right if and when people get their ndis packages they get support and they have plan managers depending on where they're at and all that stuff right but say if you had a chunk of money you get fifteen thousand or something right couldn't you then actually go, because this is what happens with some people with their NDIS packages, you, you go, all right, well, 
these are my issues at the start. And when I sit around with researchers, they always say, like you said, a lot of people naturally kind of come out of their drug addiction and, and people talk a lot about, well, if you address the social determinants of health, people are going to have a much better chance to get a better outcome, right? So if you went, okay, I've got $15,000, you have somebody helping you, I don't have housing. All right, well, housing is really important. Let's use some of that money to actually obtain some housing. Let's, and then let's use a percentage of this money to focus on community re-engagement activities. And let's use a pie of this money to go and get treatment. Maybe that doesn't have to be residential treatment that costs a bucket load. Maybe it's some kind of an outpatient program. And then you actually are addressing some of those things without having to spend all this money on setting up more housing in the housing sector, spending all this more money on like mental health and stuff like that. You, you let the person dictate what they need based on their life circumstances. And I know I'm oversimplifying it and making it sound easy, but do you You've get- got to have things to buy, Jack. Like that's mm. the, the tension, you know, and I've worked um, with a young man recently who's got a pretty good NDIS package, but the issue is buying services that are appropriate. Um, and housing for a start, you know, if housing will take a massive chunk out of NDI, any NDIS um, <laughs> package, you know. And so then if you are paying full market rent for housing, it leaves you 2 bucks 50 with all the other interventions you need. Wouldn't it be better if there was actually public housing stock that was available to people um, and then there was access to other things as well. I just think, I hear what you're saying about choice and that, but there is no real choice if there's no infrastructure. Mm. If there's housing available, if there are no services available to purchase, all the money in the world and all the choice in the world isn't real if there's not real things that you can purchase. So there has to be some base level infrastructure, not yep. just in drug and alcohol services, but in all the other services that you're talking about. If you can't get access to a decent GP, if there's there's no affordable housing in the area that you're in, mm. it really sets people up to fail. And what I would hate to see is people being given responsibility for fixing themselves and, well, here's your cash, go do it, and then not actually being able to buy the interventions that they need. Mm. Mm. And some of the other challenges around the NDIS, certainly that I've come across in recent times in looking into this space, a lot of the assessment process, it's set up around people with physical disabilities rather than intellectual disabilities. Mm. I had a recent Correct. with a young man with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I'm like, yes, we will send the person out to talk to him for half an hour and he will need to outline everything he needs. Like, dude, he's totally got intellectual yeah. disability. He actually can't articulate. He can tell you what his problems are, but it's actually you needs to figure out what the needs are. <laughs> You know, and then I had to, it was like, no, it's not appropriate to go meet with him by himself. He needs to have advocates with him. He mm. needs people who can speak to the sort of services that he need, He wants to purchase, mm. not just expect him to be able to articulate all of the specialist care that he needs. Mm. Like, it was actually the hugest setup, and I was shocked. I was just like, are you serious? Like, you're going to go have a coffee with this dude for half an hour and then decide how much money he's worth based on that conversation? Are you joking? Mm bring in all of the specialists who he's been working with who know him a bit better and let him talk about what he wants and then have them talk about some of what his clinical needs are and the stuff that he needs as well. Mm. Actually get something that's decent. And I just, the NDIS on the face of it is nice conceptually, but there's ways that it can go seriously wrong. And when you're talking about vulnerable people, 
it's not enough to just hand them a bucket of cash and go, go fix your stuff, or indeed to expect them to be able to advocate for themselves around what the extent of their needs are when their experience is not having any of their needs met. Mm. We need to actually take on a little bit more responsibility for helping people and brokering those services and doing that stuff, not abrogating responsibility. And I think, yeah, I guess I just have some reservations about that model in the immediate future, Mm. just because of the absence of infrastructure around a few core sectors and also around the regional and remote stuff. Like I said, there's no point giving people money if there's nothing for them to buy. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. So do you think there should be a private sector? Look, I think there's a place for it. Like there is, you know, with the with private hospitals and stuff like that, you know. But it shouldn't be core stuff. It should be for upgrades. Like when I had babies, I had the first one in the public system, then I got some private health insurance. So when I had the second one, I could have a private room and the doctor of my choice. Mm. I could afford to pay for it. And so I got those upgrades. That's what it should be about. It shouldn't be you can only access stuff if you've got money. Oh, 100%. Um, There should be an expectation that people's basic needs are met and that's what we all pay taxes for. So there's roads and schools and hospitals and stuff. It should also be an expectation that whatever health issue you've got, you can expect that that need will be met and that's not optional. And publicly funded services should be able to deal with the need in the community. Mm. If people who've got heaps of money want upgrades and yoga lessons and whatever else they want on top and private rooms and spas and stuff, sure, go for it. But it shouldn't be about the haves and have nots in terms of whether you can access an essential service. If you have a heart attack, you go to a public hospital. doesn't matter how much money you've got. Essential mm. service, it's a life-saving service and you need it and the government funds it. And Drug and alcohol treatment is a life-saving service. It pays dividends to the community in terms of helping people to get their lives back on track, not just for them and their families, but so they go on to get jobs and be nice tax-paying citizens like we all want them to, you know. And Mm. that's something that is worth the government investing in. It's cost-effective and it should be done. And Mm. we shouldn't be expecting people to have to pay exorbitant amounts to go to private rehabs that are not accredited, not cost-effective, none of that stuff because there's not enough capacity in the public system. You Mm. know, I think we saw that around some of the measures around the welfare drug testing. Some of that around the trial sites was, oh, and we'll have a package of stuff so people can buy, you know, their drug treatment. It's like, Mm. where where are they? (laughs) Like, no drug treatment to buy. Mm. Point. It's not that they're not wanting to buy it. It's that it's not there. 100%. Um, And until you address the fact that there's not enough infrastructure whether that be housing, drug treatment, whatever, everything else is fiddling around the edges, I reckon. No, I totally agree, I totally agree with, with you on that, like exactly. And you give a good example with the hospitals and, and stuff like that. Um, uh, just on that private stuff, like, um, well, actually, let me, let me reframe it because I think you answered it. And, and I, I 100% agree with you. And, and by the way, like I've had such an interesting experience this far in my career with drug and alcohol services, accessing them, working in them. Um, you know, I started off in a private rehab and was exposed to all that world and all that sort of stuff and saw a lot of good stuff, saw a lot of not like not so good stuff. Um, yeah. And things need to be changed, changed big time. Um, but there's also like, I think there's also a lot of like lessons that can be learned 
from you know like the private system and and how to actually operate as well um and it's something that i worry about and you brought it up earlier is that because there is a, the problem there we tend to just look at that and go oh well fucking we got to regulate that and then there's no we're not like holding the mirror up and going well there's actually a whole bunch of like problems in our own backyard as well that like we need to fix too um so that that doesn't happen and and things don't change so i'm interested because i'm sure that you think about this like what what is the pathway out in terms of the funding model to get better services like what do you think would be a good solution forward to make it happen I'll big question i know it. just fucking solve the national Just problem. problems. Give me two seconds while I shut the window first. No worries, no worries. The blowing in a distracting way. There we go. Let's not let sunlight in and freak everyone. Um, so I think it's there's multiple things, and the challenges that we face as well are around federal versus jurisdictional funding. You know, and that. Can a, you just explain that quickly? Radio. So in the drug and alcohol sector, um, some drug treatment is funded by state and territory governments. Mm-hmm. Some drug treatment is funded by the federal government. And that's a very short summary of why it's a little bit complicated. Um, mm. But what that means is there's a, it's really important that state and territory and federal funding meshes together so that we have some idea of what the whole investment is, if you know what I mean. And also mm. things like basic stuff in terms of the funding agreements, CPI, radio. Mm. Costs go up every year. Everyone knows that. Awards go up, wages go up, the cost of living goes up. Especially when we just printed billions last year. <laughs> Indeed. But in drug and alcohol land, at the federal level, those services haven't had any increase in funding to keep pace with that. Mm. You know, contracts have been rolled over for years, but if they, you know, what that's doing is gradually whittling away. So instead of getting more, without actually reducing the current level of funding, we're actually getting less because if services can't actually continue to employ the number of workers they've got, doesn't matter if they've got a heap of beds, if there's not enough workers to actually oversee those beds, then those beds go vacant. Um, It goes to upkeep and maintenance of properties, you know, where there's bricks and mortar infrastructure as well. Like we just need, before any increase in funding, it would be good if the current funding kept pace with the cost of living. Yeah. And that's before you start looking at the 200 to 500,000 people who couldn't get into treatment last year. So we need funding agreements that take into account increases in CPI mm-hmm. and we need funding changes that take into account the level of demand that we know isn't being met at the moment. Um, you know, this is basic stuff. This isn't a revolution in funding structures or anything like that. So if we start from those things... Then what would be good is if funding models, as we were talking about before, actually encouraged innovation and connectedness um, within service delivery and transitions from different modes of care and the add-on things that we've talked about in terms of social determinants of health. Wouldn't it be good if there was clauses in contracts to go, well, here's 10% on top of what you currently get for you to foster collaboration with housing services, for you to hire a staff member who helps people to transition out and get housing when they leave. Um, or here's someone who helps people to address their barriers. Here's funding for someone who helps people to address their barriers to going to treatment to start with. Um, you know, if we funded the, the costs of pharmacotherapy for people so that they were able to actually access those treatments without it costing a fortune, 
Um, there's some really basic stuff we could do before we did anything else that would make a huge difference. The accreditation framework stuff, wouldn't it be good if funding agreements actually acknowledged that there are costs associated with accreditation and mm. that needs to be done around that and that people can't be delivering frontline services while they're working on building and implementing accreditation frameworks. Like everything that we want people to do in terms of service delivery and improvements actually needs to be resourced for it to happen. And that's true whether you're talking about drug and alcohol treatment services, whether you're talking about the kinds of harm reduction services that my members do. You know, if your amount of funding doesn't go up to keep pace with the cost of living, then your service offering is constantly shrinking, even if you're getting theoretically the same level of money each year. Mm. So people are being squeezed. And in terms of workforce, I know when I ran a service back 20 years ago, I was constantly losing staff to shelf packing jobs at Woolies because mm. that was a lot less stressful than what I was asking them to do. And so people would come into the sector incredibly passionate and wanting to help people. And then- they get paid like 50,000. <laughs> indeed, and, and be working super hard and dealing with life and death situations, yep. all sorts of intense stuff. And then six months later, just go, yeah, nah. You know, I'd really rather more fam family-friendly hours and I could do this mind-numbingly boring thing for the same amount of money. Mm. We expect upskilling of the workforce. And the other issue was that, you know, I certainly still have in the organisation that I work in now. You train people up, you do a heap of succession planning for the organisation, you send people on courses and they get stolen by the private sector or the public service because we can't match those changes. So, you know, until things are appropriately resourced, not just at the service level, but at the development level, it's really a bit much to expect improvements in standards within that context, you know? That's the one thing that I've noticed. So, because what I did, right, <laughs> you probably laugh at this, but I, um, uh, I, I decided a few years ago that I wanted to really kind of make a difference in the policy space and get involved in that, right? And I thought, oh, that's where my skill set lies and all that sort of jazz. And um, uh, I thought, right, oh, I'm going to really learn this and I'm going to take a job in kind of some form of like a ground level policy position. And I won't name where it is. And some people listening probably know and whatever. And it was good. But, and I learned heaps, right? Just about how certain systems work and how what the issues are and what the problems are. And, and just like you said, I, I think that is also, uh, I've really, to, again, not to oversimplify it, but I think a lot of this stuff comes back to incentive, you know, and that's something that I always think about, like with workforce, like what's the incentive for smart, intelligent, passionate, caring people to come and work with people that have, extremely complex issues that you're dealing with high amounts of stress emotions like all this stuff life and death situations what what's the incentive i know everything's not financial but come on it's got to bait it's got to meet the basic level <laughs> to kind of live and and it just doesn't and that's one of the problems that i see is that most of the um financial incentive i guess minimal that it is anyway but is, is kind of located at that like managerial policy level, like where you're in a job kind of writing the contracts rather than delivering the services, you know? And I think that 
is real issue and kind of needs to be flipped on its head because it just from what I see is that people burn out and then there's so many people doing the bureaucratic work and not a lot of not a lot of people left to do the actual service delivery which I completely understand it's not a criticism I would do exactly the same thing but yeah it's just like the incentives are just ask end up I don't know if you agree in the in the drug and alcohol sector and we just ask people and this segues into the peers as well we just want people to do stuff out of the goodness of their heart which they do but it just kind of gets to a point where it's ridiculous you know <laughs> they do for a period of time like you know like yeah. you said it's people join the sector because they're passionate um, and they stay for as long as they can mm. and those pressures get to be too much. And I think it's not just, we shouldn't just talk about it as drug and alcohol sector. It goes to 100%. the industrial relations system as a whole, like the SHADS award that most people in our sector and the disability sector and the community care sector employed under is one of the lowest paying awards there is, you know. And if I wanted to get all feminist about it, there's a gender lens to be put on this too in terms 100%. of rates for sectors that are disproportionately staffed by women, mm. um, you know, and that's the, as well in the childcare industry, in a heap of industries that involve caring for people and things that are hard. Why is it that as a society, we value roles around management of money more than caring for people? And I mean, we've just seen the, the Aged Care Royal Commission. Like, why is it that when people are at the hardest times of their life, we, be that when they're suffering drug and alcohol issues, when they're old and sick, when they're babies? Like, why are we paying these people the least amount in our whole society when these are such critical roles? You know, it's really, really important, but it invariably goes to recruitment and retention issues for services. And particularly, as I say, when you've got services that haven't had an increase in funding, a real increase in funding for years, you know, not only are the wages not great to start with, but then you're looking at having to ask people to cut their hours and stuff like that as well. Mm. It, it just makes it such, such an impossible task for services to recruit and retain um, the staff that you want to retain. And you do constantly see pe excellent people leaving the sector mm. um, because they want to buy a house or have a, they want to do one of those things that other people get to do all the time. But I think too, we shouldn't be too self-conscious about it it's not just the drug and alcohol sector 100% around caring roles in our society and why they aren't valued enough and that's a whole nother piece of work that I know um, ACOS and unions and various others are onto but it does have an impact in terms of the services that we're able to deliver and it is relevant in terms of that broader discussion around funding for drug and alcohol services and harm reduction services and I think We've talked a lot about drug and alcohol treatment services and the under-resourcing, and I think you touched on as well, like our services in the harm reduction space as well, poor cousins again. You know, yeah. The, <laughs> the double poor that, cousin. That people work under. And, you know, even in terms of treatment frameworks, harm reduction services are, are often left out of those discussions. Of course, they're not 100%. a drug and alcohol treatment service. But isn't prevention, isn't harm reduction, isn't all of that part of the drug and alcohol sector. So there's been some great work in the last couple of years that's acknowledged that, but we do need to be careful too when we're framing these discussions. It's not all about drug treatment. Like yes, 100%. Prevention, harm reduction, transition, there's a heap of things that are really important in our sector and need to be funded and valued. And if we had a proper continuum of care, 
that ensured linkages between all of that, then the outcomes across the board would be better. And that's worth investing in. Couldn't agree more. So just quickly, we've still got, I think I still got a little bit of time with you. Um, great conversation. Loved it. <laughs> Haven't talked about anything that I thought I was going to talk to you about. But I just quickly want to touch on it because I think it's important and it's and we're going to have you back on because it's something that I want to talk a bit more about because it's evolving in the space. Um, the peer stuff. Like we started off talking about, you know, the fundamental work that lots of people have done to bring it to where it is and it feels like it needs another, um, excuse my exaggeration, quantum leap to happen. Um, like... Where do, you, where do you see it at the moment? You know, lots of people listening to this show have, you know, I, I think have had some experience with alcohol and drug use themselves and wherever they're at, whether they're family as well, they want to get in and, and kind of help out in some way because they can see problems, they have their experience, they want to do different stuff. Um, like how would you give the three minute summary of like where everything's at in the peer space at the moment um and some of the opportunities unfolding it's a selfish question for me as well <laughs> that's multiple questions jack you've wrapped up a couple in there so <laughs> um, one at a time so in terms of looking at the development of the peer workforce um i am going to plug a publication that i was done recently the peer capacity building training framework yeah um, that's on our website <clears throat> that work, again, was led by Jude Byrne, um, mm -hmm. like about at the start, and working with Graham Brown around the What Works and Why framework, looking at the elements of peer processes and the work that we do and why they're successful and what are the core best practice elements and how those can be applied in a workforce setting. What we're going to try and do in the next year and what we hope to be resourced for <clears throat> is develop some more practical templates around how to implement that in a workforce way. And again, it goes to the workforce development stuff that doesn't often get funded, you know. It's wonderful to have these policy documents and frameworks, but what we need to be able to do is work with people around how to apply them. Not another framework. That's what I find myself saying. Indeed. Let's write Can a framework. Templates? What does a job description look like? Yeah. What does a duty statement look like? What are some of the things that drop out of this in terms of best practice and how do you break that down for people who are interested in entering the sector? But again, this is the sort of workforce development that often isn't funded. We're going to try anyway, but those are really important things to understand what works and why, why peer-based approaches work. And there's plenty of literature on that in terms of engagement and the importance of peers in engaging with communities and mm. them in that way. How do we apply those things within the broader frameworks of things like accreditation. How is that valued? How is that recognised in those processes? Mm. All really important work. But in terms of the other part of the question, how do people get into the space? Mm. You know, for people who use drugs or have had a history of using drugs, engaging with their local peer-based drug user organisation is a great way forward. These are people who have similar life experiences to you, they can talk to you about the types of jobs that are on offer, not only in their organisations, but also in the broader sector and also give you tips on where you might not want to go and where mm. it's challenging. Because, you know, everyone who's had some lived experience at some point or other wants to use that in some way. 
but there are some tricks for young players. And I think connecting with your local peer-based drug user organisation and talking about what you're passionate about, how you might want to apply that, and getting some advice from people who've, who've trod that path before is not a bad place to start. And I think going back to the first part of the question, I think it's really important that we as organisations engage with mainstream services around how they employ peers. Of course, you know, in a lot of policy frameworks at the moment, it's very cool to be employing consumers. Consumers are a very diverse group. What are you talking about? Are you talking about a mental health consumer? Are you talking about a drug and alcohol consumer? Are you talking about someone who's had hep C? What sort of peer are you actually talking about? And what are the expectations around that role? And how do you help someone with boundaries around when they're doing peer work and they step up from being a member of the community to working in that community? And how do they manage those relationships when they're still part of the community at the same time? There's a heap of workforce development that our member organisations do with people all the time. And it would be great if we could build on that moving forward. Mm. You know, there's a lot of different pathways for people, but people also need to be careful. Um, because the road to hell is paved with good intentions and what looks like a good job might not be. Mm. And it's really good if you can seek the advice of people who've worked in the sector a little bit longer to talk about what your rationale is, what your skill set is and how that might best be applied. And the other thing that I certainly say to people is it doesn't have to be frontline. Like yeah, that's right. Me, for instance, I did service delivery and it nearly broke me. Like I really want to help people, but I'm better a step back. Um my boundaries suck a little bit in service delivery or my clients have my mobile number. Um, of course, I'd come on the weekend if you're having a crisis. Um, so it's better for someone like me to be working in policy and peak body kind of work where we take forward the needs of our member organisations and communities and advocate those to governments. I can um, It's much better for me to apply my skills in that way rather than be at a service delivery kind of level. But then all I know really can't stand doing policy in this sort of work because they feel that they're too disconnected from community and they want to be down where the rubber meets the road. Mm. For anyone who's thinking about working in the sector, there's a whole heap of things to consider. And talking that through with other people who are working in the sector is really helpful just mm. to get where your skills might best be applied and some of the things that you need to be careful of in looking after yourself moving forward. 100%. Awesome. Love that. So... I'm not really sure how to talk about it, <laughs> um, but like, what's the um, what's the what's the again selfish question? And for everyone listening, they've heard it before. If you listened to the podcast before with with Lily um, Owen, you know we've just recently started a um, peer based organisation. Well, I like to call it lived experience based organization um and just yeah it's just been really like interesting kind of coming in wanting to see some change and just yeah just seeing all the different problems and the different things and the good points and all that sort of stuff like as someone that's been rolling in this space for a while like what do you see as the innovation that kind of needs to happen or maybe like the paradigm shift that needs to happen to kind of make make things better for service consumers and the sector at large oh that's a big question isn't it um no it's resourcing it i i can spin it a million different ways but it's resourcing like really 
until we have services that are resourced across the spectrum of the national drug strategy and national BBV and STI strategies. So education, health promotion, prevention, treatment, aftercare, the whole bit. Um, until we have adequately resourced services, we're always going to be on a bit of a hiding to nothing. And, you know, yeah, there's drug law reform's a huge part of it as well around stigma, I think, and that goes to resourcing. Like, in what other space, I think about this often, actually, in what other space would you punish someone because a treatment failed them? <laughs> like, you have a kid with asthma and you gave them a puffer and it wasn't working, would you go take that puffer home and try harder? Yeah. You're not working hard enough at this, actually. Take that puffer home and go bloody <laughs> That would never happen. You would go, oh, I'm so sorry, sweetheart. I gave you the wrong puffer. Let me try another one. There are plenty more that are approved that we can help you with. You know, it's that sort of stuff around stigma and discrimination is why decriminalisation is not just practically but symbolically important. Why not legalisation? Well, that's a whole other conversation. But, the you know, there's a grey area between legalisation and decriminalisation as well. And depending who you talk to, um, legalisation looks a lot like decriminalisation and vice versa. Where's the line? Um, what we don't want is criminalisation because it's a disincentive for people engaging with treatment. It makes the community feel like there's some sort of value judgment on people who have alcohol and other drug problems. It provides criminal records to people that stop them from getting on with their lives, even when they've done what everyone wants them to. Um, that's a huge issue. But in terms of the funding that goes to our sector, you can't help but think that there's something to do with stigma and discrimination in terms of the resource allocation. hundred percent. You know, um, why are we, why are we having pharmacotherapy programs where it's so expensive that you can't actually engage with it? Um, why are pharmacotherapies not counting towards people's Medicare safety net when all other medications do? Mm. Why are there all these barriers in place? And in terms of drug treatment, it's not one size fits all. You know, what we want is like we have for every other health condition, a range of treatments that are approved and appropriate treatment matching. So if you have an issue with dependence on any drug, you can go to your doctor slash other service provider and talk about the treatment option that might be right for you, not have someone force a treatment option on you that isn't appropriate mm. to you when it doesn't work. Um, these are the fundamentals, I think, you know, and in terms of, you know, all of the other things that we've talked about today, drug driving, um, it shouldn't be an arbitrary thing in that only measures whether someone has used drugs. Like with cannabis, it's highly problematic. Like people can have used cannabis 10 days ago and then turn a positive drug driving test that has no relationship to whether they can drive the car or not. It should be mm. about impairment, clearly, you know, and that's something that is catching people who don't have problematic drug use, but meaning that people who use cannabis casually are getting caught up by that system over and over again in a way that they wouldn't be caught up otherwise. Mm. So the whole pill testing debate, it's gone off the boil a little bit because we haven't had festivals because of COVID that's taken some of the impetus out. But drug checking more broadly, like, has anyone noticed the fentanyl crisis in Europe and North America, for God's sake? Like, mm. you know, we've already started to see fentanyl in some of the drug supply here over Christmas. There are alerts out in New South Wales. If we had drug testing that was broader than pill testing at festivals and enabled fixed site testing so that people can get their drugs checked, maybe we'd have half a shot 
when we have a fentanyl problem. You know, naloxone, we know that naloxone is a life-saving drug. We should be pushing that out through peer services and that should be funded a hell of a lot more to ensure that when fentanyl does become a bigger issue, particularly in rural, regional and remote areas, people have timely access to this amazing life-saving drug, you know. Um, barriers to access to pharmacotherapies, we need to address those. Barriers to access to treatment. Like, none of this is revolutionary, um, you know, mind-bending stuff. It's all practical stuff that a lot of sensible people have been saying for years. And if we just started on those things first, mm. um, I think we'd find we'd be in a good place. And then we could have more intellectual discussions about what other things we needed to do to increase our efficacy going forward. But while we're not doing the fundamentals and while the sectors aren't adequately resourced for the demand that's already there, you know, we can, we can talk about changes to policy tinkering around the edges, but really that's the core of it. And our services need to be funded to do the work that we need to do. And it's not just the AOD space, it's bloodborne viruses as well. You know, we have a real shot at eliminating hep C in Australia. Mm. But if we can't ensure that people are able to uptake the treatment, if we can't address people's barriers to that through assisting them with peer-based services and helping people to address their complex needs and multiple needs so that they can engage with hep C treatment, how can we ever expect that we're going to get to elimination? And likewise, if we deny people in custodial settings the means of prevention, i.e. sterile needles and syringes in custodial settings, it's like a hole in the rabbit-proof fence. You know, you can treat as many people in prison for hep C if you want, but if they're continuing to share unsterile injecting equipment, they're just going to get it again. <laughs> you know, there's some really sensible, basic things we could be doing that would enhance the outcomes across the AOD and BBV and STI sectors, and they wouldn't cost a fortune. But once we do those things, we can have a talk about how we enhance our outcomes moving forward. But while there's still so much unmet need, I think we need to stay focused on that first. Love it. Hey, amazing show. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I like the couple of hours has just gone past like that. Um, there's actually about a thousand more things that I want to ask you, but I'm going to stop there and we'll just have to have, do part two. Um, so thanks for coming on, mate. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries at all. I have the sense that we are similarly enjoying the soapbox thing here. So I'll totally do this again. I didn't even get to segue into your fetal alcohol spectrum disorder project. I know. You also have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and interface with the criminal justice system. I think that's a podcast for another time. But, you know, it again goes to that issue of connectedness and mm. people with complex needs and also people without even necessarily complex needs, not living their lives in a single portfolio. And the fact that we need to try and make policy and funding structures reflect the needs of people, not the needs of people fit into the boxes of funding structures. 100%. Couldn't agree more. Hey, thanks so much, Mel. Um, how can people get involved with what AVIL does? Do you have any consumer-facing stuff or, or is it more getting involved with their local um, alcohol and drug peer-based networks? Yeah, look, you can go to our website. We have a heap of resources and stuff. We have obviously social media and things like that. But in the first instance, our member organisations are the front face of um, service delivery to the community and interface with the community. You can join your state and territory-based drug user organisation. 
The names of those and contact details are all on the ABLE website, so www.able.org.au. You can go onto the members' site and see who the member in your state and territory is and you can join that organisation. As we sort of started with, ABLE's members are our state and territory member organisations, but individuals can join those state and territory member organisations yep. that way. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much. Um, appreciate you coming on. And again, we're going to do round two very soon. Have a good day. Yeah, totally. Thanks, Jack. Peace. Okay. That is another episode of Real Drug Talk. Really hope you enjoyed it. We'll have the information to get in contact with Avil um, or follow what they do in the show notes. As always, if you or a loved one is struggling with um, addiction um, or addictive patterns, you can reach out to us at www.connectionbasedliving.com.au. Look out for the constant big things that we have coming and we'll see you in the next episode. Peace.